How are things this week? Great. Not bad. Good. All right, we're going to pick up where we left off. Drugs for diabetes. Has, have you started this topic anywhere else? No. In the past week, it's coming though, right? Yeah. All right, so what do you remember about metformin? Well, it does, it does all of those things, right? So it's a drug that can impair absorption of glucose to some extent. It improves tissue response to insulin to some extent, but what it does mostly is reduces hepatic glucose production. Yeah. What else? The most dangerous side effect is lactic acidosis. How often do we see that? It's not very common. In part because we've been very careful about how to use it. And in part because that risk is probably not as great as it was with the original drug in this family. A drug that used to go by the name of Fenform, taken off of the market back in the 1970s. That drug was quite a bit likely to produce lactic acidosis, and that history is a big part of the reason why we've been conservative with metformin in terms of choosing the right patients for its use. We've come to learn that even when we don't choose the right patients, the risk is still relatively low, but why go there if you don't have to? Why go there in terms of taking the risk? What else? If the primary side effects that patients are likely to complain about are GI related. And what can we do to minimize that? Start with small doses. Start with small doses and work up to whatever your target goal dose is, and every patient's a little bit different. Typically, it's somewhere around two grams <laughs> per day. Sometimes using an extended release formulation of the tablets goes a long way towards improving tolerability. If you've already tried the go slow, low dose approach. Anything else? Why not just give up on it? If someone has GI intolerance, why not just move on to the next thing? It's, it's that good of a drug. We'd hate to lose it if we could otherwise get around that side effect, which is not an allergy, it's just an intolerance. It's the most commonly used drug in the world for diabetes other than insulin, and that's for good reason. It's affordable, it has really good efficacy, both at lowering A1C and probably translating into other benefits as well. And we know almost everything there is to know about it. So it's safe, good track record, affordable, highly effective. What does it do to weight? If anything, it's weight neutral. Sometimes you might see some weight loss, but it's not a drug that causes you to gain weight. Is that attractive? Absolutely, especially in the population most likely to receive it. The type 2 diabetic who often is struggling with weight, better to give the medications that don't make that more difficult if we have that opportunity. How about risk for hypoglycemia? It's not zero, but it's relatively low compared to many drugs. And again, because the mechanism is largely insulin independent, it's not promoting insulin release. That's what I mean when I say that. There isn't a large risk for hypoglycemia, especially when you use it all by itself. You almost never see hypoglycemia as a side effect if the only drug a patient is on is, is metformin. 
they may experience hypoglycemia for other reasons, but it's unusual to be due to the drug therapy. Whereas if you use insulin, hypoglycemia, quite common. And if you use other drugs that promote pancreatic insulin release, hypoglycemia is a pretty common side effect. As is what else? For insulin or sulfonylureas, in weight gain, right? So two things we're really trying to stay away from are common side effects of other therapies. The A1C reduction you get with metformin averages about a point and a half to sometimes two points. So pretty good in terms of what's available for drug therapy. Not much else is more potent than that. Insulin and other drugs that promote pancreatic insulin release. Why do we use them despite their faults? Because they're the best at lowering A1C. <coughs> two points, maybe even better reduction. What else? If we give it to people who have a risk for diabetes, we can reduce their risk for diabetes. Yeah. And so it's actually part of the national guidelines. If you are pre-diabetic, and you can define that through A1C or some other measures, but most likely it'll be A1C, you could initiate this drug and slow the progression, reduce the risk for progression of that illness more often than not. And what would be even better than that would be to make some pretty aggressive lifestyle changes, both in terms of what you eat and how often you're exercising or be more active than you currently are. All right, so really important drug. Now, this here is a slide that shows up at the end of this material. I just brought it forward to here to summarize where we've been and to show you, more importantly, where we're going. So these are the therapies we've talked about so far. Two of them, glipizide, repaglinide, are drugs that work by doing what? In a couple weeks, you'll know. <laughs> you haven't had enough time to, I guess, consolidate the information. They promote insulin release. Yeah. That what's different about them, the primary difference between them, other than the structure, one being sulfonamide-based and one not, is what? So that would, be, that would be cause for allergy, right? So follow my base versus not. So that's one difference. Is, is their pharmacokinetic profile, right? So the sulfonylureas, the ones that we use today anyhow, are drugs that last you know, 10, 12, maybe even more hours. So it's usually one dose, two doses per day. Whereas the, the glinide drugs, repaglinide being the one I want you to recall, are very quick onset, short duration, Typically dosed when? Around major meals of the day, right? So up to three times per day. All right, this drug here, Acrobose, what does that do? It blocks the glucosidase enzyme. What does that achieve? Prevents the degradation of complex sugar to simple sugar, which means that complex sugar doesn't get absorbed very easily. Right. Complex sugars are not well absorbed. And so what you get with that type of drug is a lowering of the postprandial blood sugar surge. The side effects that you see are GI related because all that extra sugar stays in the intestinal tract and causes discomfort. So not a well tolerated therapy, but when you start to look at some of the attractive features, weight neutral, maybe some weight loss, and by itself, not a whole lot of hypoglycemia we have to worry about. Just 
it just has a poor tolerability profile, so we don't use it very often. And then metformin we just did. All right, this is where we're going now. These are quote unquote newer therapies for diabetes, but by newer we can go back 15 or even 20 years with the thiazolidine diodes. It's the incretin modulators in these glucose transport inhibitors that are the newest, and the one on the bottom is the newest. Those are about five years old now. So let's start with pioglitazone. These TZDs, as they're sometimes referred to, had um, a lot of excitement behind their introduction onto the market because of the way that they work. So there were three of them at one time. Proglitazone was the first. That drug is no longer available. Can you imagine why that might be? Without really knowing why. Either not as good as the others from an efficacy perspective, or there is some kind of side effect that didn't make it worthwhile to continue to, to market. In, in this case, it was the side effect profile. So this drug, they're all, they're all potentially stressful to the liver. Everything in this family, but certainly the case with troglitazone. A fair amount of hepatotoxicity when that drug was used. And even though the two newer agents, Rosie and pioglitazone, can still cause some liver toxicity, it pales in comparison to what troglitazone was doing. And so the first one was removed from the market once these other two became more established. Then some things happened with rosiglitazone that led to its removal from the market for a window of time, although it's been reintroduced. No one's using it. If you're encountering a patient or prescribing one of these drugs for a patient, and you see this agent, you, it's going to be pioglitazone. You see anything from this family, it's going to be Actos. Relatively easy to take typically just one pill once a day. This is the reason why there was a lot of excitement around the their use. Their main mechanism is to improve tissue response to insulin. And as we know, that's the primary insult in a lot of these type 2 diabetic patients. Their receptors are not responding to insulin in the same way. It's requiring much higher levels of insulin to produce the same kind of effect. These drugs improve that. So the underlying pathophysiology is addressed by these agents. So the excitement was that we finally have a type of therapy that not just lowers blood sugar, not just to treat symptoms acutely and sometimes chronically, but can also maybe reset the course of the disease. The trouble with that is that the drugs work on a type of receptor that has what we call pleiotropic effects. It does many things in the body. And what you end up with is off-target, unintended consequences when you start to modulate the receptor. It's known as, and I think it's spelled out somewhat over here, you can get it from this right here. It's a peroxisome proliferator activated receptor. I don't care if you remember that or not, I'm just telling you what it is. There are multiple subtypes. You can see up here, there's an alpha, there's a gamma, there's a delta subtype. And whichever one's being modulated does different things. It's the gamma subtype in the middle, and thus the thicker arrow, for which the TZDs exert most of their effect. And that is to improve carbohydrate metabolism by doing what? More sensitive to insulin. Right, making the receptors more sensitive to insulin. So carbohydrates metabolized in a more efficient manner. It also has an effect on lipid synthesis. 
it will drive the production of more LDL cholesterol. Now, what do we remember about LDL cholesterol? That's the, that's the more atherogenic, bad type of cholesterol, right? Now, if you talk to the makers of these drugs, they say, don't worry. It's a less dense, more buoyant LDL. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it goes up. That's all I know, is the level goes up. And maybe is part of the reason for some of what we've seen, but it's really hard to tell. But there are other subtypes of receptors, some expressed here and others not on this picture, that these drugs can also modulate and probably is responsible for some of the side effects that we see and we'd rather not have to deal with. So here are some of them. The liver toxicity is certainly real, but it's much less with drugs like Actos than it was the first drug in this family, prednisone resulate. So monitoring the liver function test. If there were just one drug for diabetes for which you have to pay close attention to liver function, it would be this drug or any drug from within this family. There is the potential for these drugs to cause fluid retention to the point where if someone has really poor fluid underlying related disease like heart failure, these drugs might tip the scales and put them into an acute exacerbation. So not good drugs to be using in patients with advanced heart failure. Now how many patients with diabetes have advanced heart failure? There's quite a few, right? There's quite a few of those out there. And then adverse effects on the bone. So these drugs can reduce bone mineral density and maybe set people up for greater risk for osteoporotic fractures. And again, the population we're treating is already heading into the demographic where osteoporosis is more likely. So things to consider. What you'll also come up against is potential adverse cardiovascular events with some of them, mostly rosiglitazone. Although trying to tease out if that's really drug-related or not is hard to do. Cause and effect is not proven when you discover something retrospectively. And that's the case there. And also what you might see advertised on television is associations between use of these drugs and bladder cancer. So again, it's hard to tell if these drugs are really the culprit, but there have been a number of reports, enough reports, for the, the predatory litigators to advertise to the public and encourage them to call us if you've had bladder cancer or a bladder-related problem and have taken one of these drugs in the past. I don't put it on the slide because I'm not really sure it's really related, but that's what patients will ask about if they're started on one of these drugs, adverse bladder effects. So not used a whole lot. Part of the reason for that I'm going to come back to, but majority is because they have a lot of off-target effects despite what is really good efficacy for diabetes anyway. Now we move on to the neck, and so certainly pioglitazone is the one I want you to recall. This is the one that's used when these drugs are used. Not that you need to remember that dose, I just want to illustrate it's an easy medicine to take otherwise. Now this story here, this is the incretins and their role in diabetes. And one of the most important incretin hormones, and there's a whole series of incretin hormones, one of the most important is this one right in the middle here. GLP-1, which is also known as glucagon-like peptide type 1. It has multiple roles. It's produced in the intestinal tract. And it gets released in response to carbohydrate presence. 
So if you're in a fasting state, there's very little of this hormone that's being produced from the intestinal tract cells. But if you've just eaten something, there's a lot of it being produced and released. So it's produced in a glucose-dependent manner. Its most important role related to the glucose is to help signal the pancreas what needs to be done in response to this carbohydrate intake. What's the quantity of insulin that ought to be produced and released in relation to the quantity of carbohydrate that was just ingested? This is the key mediator. And so it works in concert with carbohydrate to tell the pancreas essentially what to do. It drives pancreatic release of insulin. And at the same time, suppresses pancreatic release of another hormone. What would you imagine that would be? Glucagon, right? So there's suppression of glucagon. No need to tell the liver to produce more glucose when we just have a bolus of it that entered into the body through the GI tract. So suppress glucagon and enhance insulin release. The other role... There's a few others, but the other important role is to slow gastric emptying. So the reason why there are two arrows coming from GLP-1 is because it works on cells within the pancreas to affect glucagon and insulin. And it works directly in the GI tract and probably also in the brain to slow gastric emptying. And what does that do? If gastric emptying is slowed, how do you feel? You feel fuller longer and it curbs your appetite. Maybe to the point of nausea, if there's enough of this stimulus in place. And so through a combination of both local in the stomach and in the brain, there is suppression of appetite. Slow gastric emptying and some signaling of peptides in the brain, and there's no longer the interest in eating for longer <coughs> periods of time than there would be otherwise. It turns out that in type 2 diabetics, this hormone is what? It's deficient. There's not enough of it. It's there. It's not there in sufficient quantities. And so as a result, there is an altered response in the pancreas to glucose loading. There's some response, but not as much as you would like. And there isn't as much diminishing of the appetite because the slowing of gastric emptying isn't happening to the same extent. So if we know that hormone is deficient, what pharmacologically would be our options to address it? To give it back as a drug, just like we might replace insulin, we could replace this hormone. What would be the rate limiting factor in terms of drug delivery? It's a peptide, right? It's a, it's a protein. And so we would not be able to, at least not easily, be able to give it what way? Through the oral route, right? It would have to, like insulin, be given by injection. And so we have a whole series of drugs now that are known as GLP-1 receptor agonists or GLP-1 analogs, they're the same thing. And they're given by injections. There's five or six of them on the market right now need to be given by injection because they're structurally peptide products that will get digested otherwise. It would be great if we could give them orally. We're not quite there yet. An alternative way to address this might be to do what? 
increase its production. Theoretically, that might be another way to handle this. There's nothing yet that does that, that we can prescribe to patients. But it may be a target the scientists are looking at. So is there anything we can do to generate greater production of the hormone? Doesn't exist, but a plausible mechanism. What else might you be able to do? Further stimulate the receptors for it, and we're going to count the analogs as essentially doing that, right? If you give essentially more of the substrate that stimulates the receptors, that's why they're called receptor agonists. Anything else? Upregulate the receptors. Again, biologically plausible, nothing yet that exists. Now, let me tell you one other piece. There is an enzyme that normally degrades this peptide. Block the enzyme. Right? That enzyme is known as dipeptidylpeptidase type 4, DPP4. It's written out on the slide coming up. And so we can block that enzyme, and that's another strategy that currently exists. Enzyme inhibitor prevent endogenous degradation of the hormone. And so whatever you do produce can last that much longer and hopefully exert a greater effect than wherever the baseline was. Drugs such as citagliptin, which is known as Genuvia, who's heard of that? A few people have heard of that. That's how those drugs work. There's four or five of those on the market now, too. They all end in glyptin. Those glyptin drugs are enzyme inhibitors. Now, unlike giving back a hormone, when you develop a drug that blocks an enzyme, what's usually possible? Oral, Oral delivery. Yeah, and that's the case for drugs like Genuvia. It's one dose once a day given orally, and that's sufficient. It's not the most potent way to address this problem. The most potent way would be to do what? Give back the hormone through the injections. But the next best way, certainly more acceptable to many patients, is to give an oral dosage form that achieves something comparable. All right, so let's look forward. These are the agonists. These are the analogs. Who's heard of Bieta or Victoza? Anzium? Not as many. A few people may be. They're not used as often. Trulicity is probably the most commonly used around here. They're not used as often because they're all injections. They are all analogs of GLP-1. So just to show you what's going on with the cartoon, it's the same thing we were just looking at. You have the intestinal tract. You have glucose that presents to it. That triggers the release of this hormone, which in turn has effects in the pancreas, increased insulin, reduced glucagon and effects in the stomach to slow gastric emptying. In concert, you have reduced blood glucose because of reduced intake and enhanced pancreatic effects. In every case, it's an injection. Now, what's made it easier to accept these injections compared to, say, insulin? Some of these, like, why do you think it is that a drug like Trilicity is the most commonly used up here. If they all work the same way. Are they long acting? Yeah, long acting versions, or just long acting inherent properties. So the administration of the original GLP-1 agonist, Exenatide, 
which went by the name Bayetta, was an injection twice a day, every day. Whereas Trilicity Dulaglutide is one injection once a week. That's it. Not too bad. And these are sub-Q injections, just like insulin, can be self-administered at home. Patients usually can do this with relative ease. They may not accept it at first, but it's not difficult to do. Some of them are still, that are used a lot, are still once a day, like liraglutide is a once a day injection. The, the efficacy data to support liraglutide is as strong as any one of these up here, which is why that's one of the most commonly used agents. But all of the others beyond Victoza, so Tanzium, Felicity, Edlixin, Ozempic, actually not Edlixin, but increasingly they're once a week to just make it easier for patients. Not that I'm going to ask you to remember which is which. We are going to go with liraglutide or Victoza as the prototype. So see this drug. They all in the TIDE, so you should recognize them as peptides. See this drug up here, liraglutide, and know that it is representative of this family of drugs. What would you expect the side effects to be? GI-related. There tends to be reduced appetite, sometimes nausea, sometimes to the point where patients might vomit on occasion. And is oftentimes a reason why they will not dose the drug as often as you would like, or they sometimes outright just stop using it. Because they don't like the way they feel on it. Despite what ends up being really good results. Because along with the reduced appetite, we see meaningful reductions in weight. And we see really good reductions in A1C. So good for glucose control and good for weight control. In fact, some of these, and liraglutide is one of them, are used by weight loss centers to help treat patients with obesity. They are, in some cases, marketed under separate brand names, like liraglutide in a much higher dose than we use for diabetes, comes as another brand name. I think it's Saxenda, but I'm not positive. And that's specifically liraglutide indicated for weight loss. In fact, when exenatide, the first of these, came to the market, it's the only drug I can remember, there might have been others, but it's the only one I can remember where when the salespeople come calling on the offices, what are they trying to do? Encourage you to use their drug, right? Teach you about it, give you samples of it, prescribe it for everybody. And what they were doing was saying, you know what, this new drug is on the market for diabetes, don't prescribe it. We're not going to give you samples of it. We don't have enough of it to meet the demand currently. And it's because they didn't expect as much of its use for obesity as was happening in clinical practice. And so it didn't take them long to fix that problem, but it's the first time I've ever had someone calling us and say, hey, here's our new drug. Try not to use it. Um, if Victoza has the same effectiveness as like the Trulicity, but you have to do it once a day and that was only once a week, why wouldn't you just do the once a week? Yeah, I slipped the reason for that in there somewhere. I don't know if anyone picked up on that. <laughs> 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 I guess not. Well, anyone want to guess? I've done enough talking. 30 minutes in. Um, so people might want to skip doses sometimes if they're nauseous. But if it's a once a day version, it means that in order to be therapeutic most of the time, you've got to stick to once a day. 
but if you're skipping doses, then you're not, you don't have therapeutic drug in your system. But it does allow you to do that, right? If the nausea is lasting all week, then if you skip a dose, it's, you know, I don't know how easy it is to do that. Once a week, how do you regulate insulin response in terms of like having hypoglycemia in the face of like not having any carbs? Is it more likely to promote hypoglycemia? So the hypoglycemia risk with these drugs is relatively low, and it's relatively low. It can happen. It certainly happens more than you see metformin or TZDs. The reason it happens is because they promote insulin release, right? But the reason it's not as great as, say, giving insulin is because when are they promoting insulin release? When there's also glucose in the GI tract. So it's the two working together. And so if there's no glucose, there's not much effect of the hormone. And if there's already glucose there, then it keeps you, protects you a little bit from hypoglycemic episodes. Whether it's once a day, twice a day, or once a week. Do patients who take the once a week one because they're consuming it's like a larger dose, do they feel, are the side effects more intense with the once a week dose versus the daily? It turns out that the everyday dose, now these drugs have not been compared head to head, like randomized patients to one or the other and study them, at least not very, very large studies. But it does look like, if you just compare the studies side by side, that the intensity of nausea is greater with the once a day. This is probably because it's more important. That's got to be it. So it has to be like insurance, because there's no like logical. Oh, um, well there is a logical reason. But um, insurance oftentimes is a rate limiting step. And it turns out that most insurers will pay for liraglutide plus one other one. Recognizing that liraglutide is once a day and maybe not convenient for everyone. And one of the other once a week products. And usually it's liraglutide. Because it's the easiest of the group to use. I'm going to show you a picture of these here in a second, but it's probably the easiest of these to use. So what I what I put in there was um, I was able to slip by all 40 something of you today. Was that the efficacy data with liraglutide is stronger than any of the others? This is a type of therapy that's been shown to not just improve glucose control, but also reduce the risk for adverse cardiovascular events. There was a study that was published a couple of years ago now, LEADER, the LEADER study, and it used loraglutide, and it showed that when you take a group of type 2 diabetics who are on their usual therapies, whatever it is they need right now to control their diabetes, and then you either give one group a placebo on top of that, or give them liraglutide on top of that, over the next year, the re there's a reduced risk for adverse cardiovascular events. Reduced hospitalizations due to heart failure, reduced MI, reduced all-cause mortality. And that's pretty impressive. You don't see that kind of outcome happen after just a few months to a year of drug therapy. And we haven't seen that so far with the majority of the others. Very similar designs for all the others, and we've not seen that level of benefit. Now, we don't know exactly why, other than maybe it's just a more potent drug, and that somehow translates. But because of that, it's a drug that still is used quite a bit. Because if you want to be evidence-based, 
if you want to prescribe the best of these drugs, then the one that has the best data, as of right now, is liraglutide. Now that may soon change because there was recently a study published with semaglutide that showed comparable outcomes to leader. And semaglutide is just once a week. But this drug's only been available a couple of months now, so it's part of the reason why it's not been used a whole lot yet. All right, so the answer to your question is? Yeah, the outcomes data are really strong. And the outcomes data for the com competition just aren't as strong. Not that they show harm, they don't. It's a neutral effect on cardiovascular outcomes, which is pretty good. It's just this shows not only that it's not harmful, but that it actually produces benefit above and beyond the A1C lowering. All right, so these are all injectable drugs that could sometimes be a barrier. The main side effects I think make sense. Nausea, which translates to weight loss, and some hypoglycemia, but not on the same order as it would be if you gave insulin, or a drug like a sulfonylurea, such as glaviride or glipizide. Some of them require dose adjustment for impaired kidney function, all but one. And these are the question marks. Like, what is the long-term data going to show us in terms of risk for thyroid tumors, pancreatitis, and maybe adverse effects on the kidney. Why those three? Simply because case reports have shown up with a fair amount of frequency in the post-marketing world. Right? That's how we learn about drug adverse effects, not in 1,000 patients, but in 10,000. It's after 100,000 have been exposed, and what has the real world taught us about their use? And these are the things that have come up. So thyroid tumors have mostly been in animal models. We have yet to see this come to reality in humans. How long have these drugs been available? Does anyone know? Yeah, we're going on 12, 13 years now, which is a long time. 10 years worth of evidence is oftentimes sufficient to pick up <coughs> something like a cancer. So, so far, so good when it comes to that. In animals, for whatever reason, we see thyroid tumors, a certain type. We haven't seen that in humans. Why is the pancreatitis so difficult to tease out? Because there have been a lot of reports of pancreatitis. Why is it hard to tease out whether or not that's really the drug that's causing it? A lot of them can cause it. Well, because when you have diabetes, that disease itself puts you at risk for pancreatitis. So is it that it's a sick population just to create a risk for pancreatitis, or does the drug really uncover something? And so we don't know, but there's certainly enough reports out there that make us wonder. And then maybe some adverse effect on the kidney too, but that's nowhere near as strong. So if you are going to use one of these drugs, these are some of the considerations. And the reason I put this in here is because a lot of clinicians today are struggling with where does this fit. So if you're looking for weight loss, some attractive reason to use this in addition to treating diabetes. You want to minimize the hypoglycemia that would come if you were to use the alternative. And the alternative is usually going to be what? This isn't where you typically start someone with type 2 diabetes, but you move towards it. So the insulin's the option's oftentimes going to be insulin, right? So it's do I add insulin or do maybe I first add one of these drugs? And if you compare it to insulin, well, there's not the weight gain and there's not as much hypoglycemia. If your A1C is within about a point to two points, not as strong at lowering A1C as insulin, but maybe is the next best thing. 
you have to overcome the barriers of injection and cost. We talked about insulin costs last week, right? How much for a vial of insulin? At least $100, if not two to $400 for some of the newer analogs. What's the cost for these? Here's a, here's a picture of them. So they all come in pen formulations. This one here is about to be taken off of the market. So albiglutide is, the company just decided it's not worth investing in anymore because they're not selling enough of it. What do you think it costs for, say, four of these pens, which is a month supply, or a box of five of these pens, which is a month supply? What do you think that is? <coughs> Close to a thousand dollars, eight hundred to a thousand dollars for a one-month supply of these medicines. If you don't have good insurance and otherwise have a lot of resources at your disposal, then access to these is limited. So that that's certainly a barrier. Come back to this here in a second. And then, if there are postprandial glucose excursions, maybe we want to add them to basal insulin. Remember what we talked about? I think we talked about last week. How do we start insulin in a type 2 patient? Most often, what do we do? What type of insulin do we start with? A long-acting once-a-day insulin, usually once a day. And we give it to them maybe at bedtime. Not that difficult to do. And what that's really doing is replacing the, or it's addressing the glucose that's coming from where? The base of glucose that comes from the liver, right? It's really, that's what it's really addressing. But it's not doing a whole lot for mealtime glucose boluses. This type of therapy would, right? Because these types of drugs work in concert with glucose. So if you've started someone on a basal insulin and they're still having a lot of hyperglycemia, we can further address that by using one of these GLP-1 agents postprandial, right after eating, glucose excursions. The GLP-1 agent is addressing the glucose loading, the boluses, and the basal insulins are addressing the glucose from the liver. And if the, what we see here, does anyone know what liraglutide and lixicenatide must have in common to be paired up in one pen? Two drugs. They're, they're the once-a-day versions. Right. You can't use a once a week and combine it with a, an insulin product that's supposed to be given once a day. So you won't ever see combinations of, to go back here, combinations of, say, dulaglutide with insulin on one pen because this is a once a week GLP agent and you can't, you can't get enough insulin to, into that patient. You'd have to supplement that with other insulin prescriptions. So imagine what those cost. Result of fee or Sleekwa, we're looking at $1,500 for a month's supply of one of those. All right, so these are the agents, just so you can see how they compare. The doses are somewhat different, but they all are you know, within a ballpark except for a couple of them. They all have some dose adjustment for impaired kidney function. And the only thing up here I really want you to remember is liraglutide is the drug that we have the best data for, so that's the one I want you to recognize. Now back to the pens themselves. So what do you do with a dulaglutide pen once you've given the dose? 
So this is, if you could see through this, you would see a clear solution of medicine. And you press on here and the needle comes out over there on the top. What do you do once you've administered the dose? You throw it away. It's, these are what are called disposable pens. There's a whole lot of plastic going into the environment. All of these are disposable. Some of them you reuse for multiple doses, like Victoza, but once you're done, you're done. It just gets thrown away. And then you buy a whole new pen. What did we need for the insulin pens in order for them to be used? The needles, the screw on the end. You still need the needles for these. You don't see it here, but you need them. What's different about most of these, not all of them, is that they come packaged with the needles already there. So you don't, you don't need another prescription for the majority of them. Many of them you need to mix before you actually administer it. Like this Bidurian product is half, you don't see it, but half is liquid, the other half is powder. And so you have to twist the pen together and rotate it and get everything mixed up before you administer. Another reason why Trilicity is advantageous is because there's no mixing required. You just pull it out of the box and you inject it and you're done. So it's probably the easiest of the group to use. All right, the DPP-4 inhibitors, these are the oral drugs, the drugs that block the enzyme. So in this case, they're preventing degradation of GLP-1. There's more hormone to go and do all the same things that it would do otherwise. And there are four drugs in this family now. They all end in gliptin. Citagliptin was the first, Genuvia, so that's the one you should recognize. See that drug name, know the properties that you're about to see here on the, these next few slides. So not as high in potency, so what would you expect in terms of properties? The same side effects, but lower intensity. The same side effects as, say, Victoza, but the intensity of them is less. So yeah, maybe there's some nausea, but not quite as severe. It's just more loss of appetite. There's not as much weight loss, but the good news is that you don't see weight gain. Can't count on it for weight loss as much, but at least the weight doesn't go up. And hypoglycemia risk is still there, but it's even less than it is for a drug like Victoza. There also seems to be some requirement for dose adjustment for kidney function. And then there is these other concerns. Some of the same ones and some others that are different. And again, this is all post-marketing evidence that suggests that maybe these risks exist. We're not really sure. The only one that might come up of these on an exam is pancreatitis. It'll be the sort of along the lines of the question I just asked a few minutes ago. Do these drugs really cause pancreatitis, or is it an artifact of the population we're using them in? What would be your approach? Should someone be taking one of these drugs, whether it's the enzyme inhibitor or the peptide replacement therapy, if they developed acute pancreatitis, what would you do? Treat it. Treat it? <laughs> That's a good place to start. Would the treatment include taking away these drugs? Yeah. It probably should. And that's how we approach it. And then the question becomes, should we do what? Rechallenge afterwards. And that's very much a case-by-case -case example. 
But I think what I'll probably do is ask a question, if I go there, ask a question that has to do with pancreatitis, and what I'm looking for you is to identify one of these drugs are on board and that they should be held as part of the treatment for that pancreatitis. I think that might be a good place to go. Sound okay? All right. It hasn't been written yet. I just have to remember to do it. But that's, when we're seeing these cases, that's one of the first things we do is we stop these drugs. Just because we're not really sure. Maybe there is something to it. All right, so one of these drugs, if, again, you want to avoid weight gain, maybe not promote weight loss, but avoid weight gain, minimize hypoglycemia, still some, but nowhere near as much as insulin. If your A1C is within a half point to a point, so how does that differ? Not as strong, right? Not as strong, lower octane approach, so you're not going to get as much A1C reduction. And then preferably there's no history of pancreatitis, maybe not heart failure too. That was another one that's on this slide. Some of these drugs, there's some evidence of worsening heart failure, but hard to tell if it's truly related or not. And again, cost is not a barrier. Now the cost here is only $400. But that's still, for most people, that's, that's a problem if you don't have good access. And these are the options. Now what do you think is one distinguishing feature that leads you towards one of these drugs in some cases. Because otherwise, they're almost the same drug. Underlying kidney function, right? So if that's an issue, then that might steer you towards using Trojento, Linagliptin, because there is no renal removal. All the others, there's some dose adjustment. And if your kidney function is really bad, maybe they're not the right drugs to be using in the first place. So if you look across the landscape of which of these drugs are being used clinically out there in the real world, GLP-1 agonist, drug like Victoza, DPP-4 inhibitor, drug like Genuvia, what do you see most commonly? The DPP-4 inhibitors. And that's because ease, ease of use, right, in better acceptability amongst patients. And in some parts, just more comfort level from the prescribers. If a lot of the prescribing is coming from family practice and primary care, which it is for diabetes, there's inherently going to be greater comfort with prescribing oral drugs than there is injectable drugs. All right, this picture here represents the last category of medications for diabetes that we're going to talk about. There are some other miscellaneous ones, but I'm not even sure they really work. All right, does anyone want to take a stab at pronouncing either one of these? I'm hearing a few people pronounce it the way that it's intended to be pronounced. So these drugs are all are all gliflozin. And so then you just add the four or five letters before that. So canagliflozin, epagliflozin, that's technically how these should be pronounced. Where do they work? Right, we've upgraded our picture of the nephron, right? So we no longer have that old picture. We have a newer one that's been flipped. And so now glomerulus is on the right side. Remember what I'm talking about? Yeah. All right, so it turns out that there is a substantial amount of glucose in our bodies every day 
that gets filtered into the kidneys. I think we alluded to this last week, right? There's like 150 grams of sugar every day that goes into the kidney. Almost all of that gets reabsorbed through two separate glucose transport reabsorbing pumps. A type 1 transporter where 10% is reabsorbed and a type 2 transporter where the other 90% is reabsorbed. It turns out that the type 2 transporter is more proximal and is the more important of the two. My guess is that the type 1 was probably identified first and thus it was called type 1, but it's not as relevant. These drugs, the glucosin drugs, block the type 2 transporter. So instead of reabsorbing 90% of that sugar, where does it go? Into the urine, right, and then we eliminate it. So we prevent glucose reabsorption and it gets removed in the urine. What would you expect to be the consequences of that? So infections, because now you have a great growth medium for different types of organisms, so that certainly is reality. Increased urinary frequency. Increased urinary frequency, at least initially, right? These are diuretics. And with that, you get maybe volume depletion, maybe also what? Electrolyte imbalances, maybe also what? That could be good. Maybe weight loss, and maybe um, better for CHF. Blood pressure reduction. Yeah. So it goes both ways, right? Volume depletion, electrolyte abnormalities, but blood pressure reduction and weight loss. So pretty good trade-offs there. And so all of those are what you would expect. Now the the increase in infections tends not to be bacterial, but what? Fungal. Yeah, mycotic infections. Very clear that there's a greater risk for mycotic infections, especially in females, but also in males, just not to the same extent. All right, so these are also relatively easy drugs for patients to take. There are certainly those things we just talked about, but there isn't day-to-day -day side effects that patients say, oh, this doesn't make me feel good. One pill once a day, and they can barely notice they're taking it. So there's the mycotic infections, there's the increased urination, there's the electrolyte changes that could occur. These are the other things that have shown up in the post-marketing evidence to date. And there seems to be more evidence to support these than there were some of the other miscellaneous things for the incretin modulators. So each of these are actually going to be worth remembering, unfortunately so. Reductions in bone mineral density which may put you at greater risk for osteoporotic fractures. When studied prospectively, this seems to be real. And again, might be related to the diuretic effect and adverse things that are happening to calcium absorption. So we can biologically explain why that could be occurring. There is an increase in the risk of amputations of the foot, sometimes the leg, more specifically, most often, one of the toes. And that's been seen uniquely with canagliflozin. In the large prospective studies that come from something called the CANVAS studies, we've seen an increased risk for lower limb amputations, mostly of one or more toes. Can you make an argument for why that would occur? We don't know why. Can you think about what might be plausible? 
difficulties. So take a group of patients that are all well-matched for diabetes. They all look pretty much the same. Some get a placebo on top of their other drugs, and some get canagliflozin on top of their other drugs. And, and over the next year or two, the risk for amputations in the canagliflozin group is about twice as high as it is in the placebo group. Why would that be? Drug interactions that somehow lead to this complication? I, I don't know. I'm just wondering if... I have a thought, but I don't know if it's real or not. Maybe a reduced perfusion, right? So, as usual, Andrew takes credit for everything Lori says. So. That's a thought. All right. So we uh, we're just getting sort of mean right now. So, so. <laughs> it could be that the volume depletion that occurs with the diuresis somehow reduces blood supply and shunts it away from the sites that need it the most for ulcer healing. Don't know. But it is something we've seen with at least one of them. The big question now is, is, is it really drug-related? And if it is, is it a class effect? Haven't seen it with the others, but with the others we haven't asked the question yet. We haven't studied this outcome. So we'll see. Jury's still out on that. But it's now a black box warning with canagliflozin. First thing you see when you open up the product label for that drug, increased risk for foot and toe amputations. And then the ketoacidosis, do you know much about this? Hasn't really come up yet. So this is a, uh, a life-threatening diabetes-related event. Where we typically will see it is in the type 1 diabetic population where blood sugars can go sky high. And what's happening there is there's such poor use of glucose, there isn't because there's not enough insulin, that the cells are starved for sugar. Glucoses are sky high because the cells aren't taking it up because there's just not enough insulin. And what the body will do is revert to breaking down fatty acids as a sugar supply. And that produces all these ketones, which then are damaging to your body throughout. That's the ketoacidosis. That's a life-threatening emergent condition that is almost always a type 1 population. And even if it's not, it's people with sky-high, way out of control blood sugars. We have seen, since the launch of these glucose transport inhibitors, we've seen some patients present with ketoacidosis, related to time-wise, related to starting one of these drugs. The interesting thing about this is that those patients have not had sky-high blood sugars. They've been mostly euglycemic. They've been normal. And they've been a type 2 population, which isn't typically where you see ketoacidosis to begin with. So we don't know why that is, but it's an interesting observation and something to think about. Like if someone's acutely ill, which is where you're most at risk for acidosis, maybe worth holding these drugs during that acute illness until we learn more about this. Fortunately, it's been really rare. It's like 30 cases out of how many who have been exposed, but it's an unusual presentation. Some think it might have to do with the rapid change at the cellular level of the amount of glucose that's absorbed when you first start taking the drugs, right? Because how much glucose is usually filtered through the kidney and reabsorbed? 
almost all of it, right? Which is now we're talking about over 100 grams of glucose. And if all of that is now being removed, that at the cellular level means there's a lot of loss, right? There's just nowhere near as much glucose available. Maybe that shifts towards fatty acid metabolism. It makes sense. We don't know for sure if that's the case. All right, so who would you use these drugs in? Again, if you want to avoid weight gain, you want to avoid hypoglycemia, either one of those is relatively rare. We have weight loss because of the diuresis. And again, insulin independent mechanisms, so risk for hypoglycemia is relatively low. If blood pressure is elevated, these drugs can lower blood pressure, and they do so in a meaningful way. Four, five, six millimeters of mercury reduction in both systolic and diastolic. We want to be careful if there's an increased risk for urinary infections or amputations. Those might not be good candidates. Preferably, there's low risk for fractures or ketoacidosis, like they're not acutely ill. The A1C reduction, you get about 1 percentage point. So this is right in the middle between what you get with a drug like Victoza, peptide analog, and a drug like Genuvia, the enzyme inhibitor. This is sort of happy medium of the two. And then the cost here, too, is about $400 per month. So that also is a barrier. So these are the agents. All require dose adjustment for impaired kidney function for two reasons. What are those reasons? If you fail to dose adjust, or maybe even avoid it, if there's poor kidney function, what would be the consequences? A drug accumulation, which puts you at risk for just in general, more, more side effects. And what else? Where is the site of action of these drugs? In the kidney. And if you have poor kidney function, they may not distribute as well to their site of action. So it's for two reasons. Drug accumulation and toxicity, and maybe reduced efficacy. Inability to get to their site as easily and readily as they should. All right, now the one drug I want you to remember from this family is empagliflozin. And that's because, like with like with liraglutide in the leader study, empagliflozin has a similar cardiovascular outcome study called Empareg, which is as impressive as any cardiovascular outcome study we have seen with the diabetes drug ever. It's pretty cool. And so that is a very favorable agent to add on in someone who has high cardiovascular risk. Because not only does this drug lower A1C, but you see, reduced risk for a whole composite of major adverse cardiovascular events. And you see the separation between placebo and drug as soon as three months. What does that tell you? It's good. It's really fast. Why would it be so quick? Is that a consequence of A1C lowering? It could be hemodynamics, it could be blood pressure reduction, but even in some of the best studies with blood pressure lowering drugs, you don't see that kind of separation after just three months. It's probably some other effect, but we don't know what it is. It's really impressive, that's for sure, but we can't exactly explain it. All right, let's take a break, and then we will summarize the last bit of information with this material, and we're going to move into anticonvulsants, and then 
will be done for the day. But that's an hour away still. All right, so take like five minutes. All right, so this is where this is where we began with this content using this picture to illustrate the main mechanisms by which all the drugs fit in afterwards. So we can give back insulin, that's deficient. We can give basal insulin once a day, usually sometimes twice a day. We can give mealtime insulin around the major meals of the day and maybe some big snacks too if needed. And so recognizing insulin Lispro, which is Humalog, as a basal insulin, as a uh, mealtime insulin and insulin glargine, which is Lantus, as a basal insulin is, I think, what I asked you to be able to do. In addition to regular insulin, which is also mealtime, and what's the analogous type of insulin that is basal? Regular insulin mixed with some protamine. NPH. NPH. Right, so recognize those two. We can give sulfonylurea drugs or non-sulfonylurea sulfonylurea so glipizide or repaglinide to promote hepatic release of insulin. We can give drugs that slow absorption of carbohydrates, so that's where acrobose fits. We can give a drug that primarily suppresses glucose output by the liver, that is metformin. A drug that primarily improves tissue response to glucose, that is the, the thiazolidine dions, actose or pioglitazone, that's where we began today. Or we can give drugs, not directly depicted on here, that modulate the incretin hormones that affects how much insulin is released from the pancreas in response to dietary glucose. So either give back the hormone that's deficient or slow down the endogenous degradation of whatever hormone happens to be there. And that's with either drugs like moraglutide, which is victosa, or acetagliptin, which is genuvia, or at the level of the kidney, prevent the reabsorption, promote its removal, and that's where the gliflozin drugs come in, such as empagliflozin. And so here is that where we started today. This is the slide I copied and moved earlier. So here are each of the categories, non-insulin categories, and the prototype drugs that I want you to be able to fit into the families. Do you agree it's fairly intuitive? I mean, it's a lot of content, but it should be relatively easy to remember because the mechanisms for the most part make a whole lot of sense. And the more common side effects make more sense based on their mechanisms. We can't explain all of the side effects, but the big ones we can certainly do so for most of these drugs. All right, now, most patients with type 2 diabetes will be started on metformin unless what? Not a sulfonamide allergy, but there's some reason we can't use it, right? There's an intolerance, there's really bad kidney function, there's really bad heart function, there's really bad lung function, whatever it is, there's some underlying condition that precludes its use. But everyone else starts on metformin. And sometimes we use a sulfonylurea, especially if we're really trying to get glucose down in an aggressive way mostly because they've been around forever and we know exactly what they're going to do and they're very affordable. But you can make some arguments that the weight gain and the hypoglycemia and some other features aren't so attractive. So where do we go next? 
And I have listed up here some of the more common options. A TZD, a drug-like actose, that's where we began today. One of the incretomodulators, either give back the hormone or suppress degradation, the enzyme inhibitor. Give a drug like epiglophosin or go right to insulin. And how do we decide? Which of these four pathways do we go down? It depends on the patient. Yeah, it depends on all the different features and characteristics. So there's a lot of heterogeneity here in terms of what gets used next. There is no prescribed pathway. It has to be based on what makes sense between the provider and the patient. And there are pluses and negatives for each pathway. Now, this study here is the reason why Avandia, which is rosiglitazone, is never encountered these days. Remember I said it was really just Actos that's used, pioglitazone? This was a, a meta-analysis that was done a little over 10 years ago, and they pooled all the cardiovascular safety data from all the studies that existed up until that point in time with suspicion that maybe that high LDL I was talking about may translate into some bad outcomes. And what they found was that there seems to be a greater risk of MI when this drug was used versus not used. But it was retrospective analysis. It was looking at things after they had already occurred. So you can't control for a lot of things like you would in a prospective study. Regardless, the FDA looked at this and made the decision that, you know what, we're not comfortable with this drug we are going to ask the manufacturers to greatly limit its access because we think there's something uniquely different about it from a safety perspective and we don't see these kinds of signals with Actos, pioglitazone, so we'll let that one go. And so since that time, the last 10 years, if anyone's been started on one of these drugs, it's been pioglitazone, Actos. Now a few years ago, maybe two years ago, there had been enough additional prospective evidence for the FDA to change their minds about this. And they finally acknowledge, you know what, this evidence doesn't prove cause and effect, so we're going to do what? Lift our restrictions on Avandia. And now if you want to prescribe it, there's no barrier to doing so. But the damage has been done. No one's using this drug anymore because for the past 10 years we haven't because we've been worried about it. But what this did at the time is it created this next slide. And that was a mandate by the FDA that if you're going to bring a new drug to market for diabetes, we want you to show, in addition to all the other things you usually show, we want you to show through a minimum of 52 weeks of prospective study that there is no cardiovascular harm. And that's largely because of this. Retrospectively, there seems to be maybe a signal towards risk We'd really like to know prospectively if this risk exists and sooner rather than later. So if you want to bring a new drug to market, this is something we're going to hold you to. We might approve your drug today and the study's not done, but you need to commit to having started the study. A minimum of 52 weeks proving no harm on the cardiovascular system. And that's why we have all of these studies color-coded by class of drug, like the top are the glyptin drugs, the middle are the glyphosin drugs, here are the peptide analogs in pink, and a few other miscellaneous ones. And what you might recognize when you start to look at these names are some of the ones I've written on the board. Like here's the Empareg study for epiglyphosin. 
and leader is up here somewhere. I just don't know where it is. Here it is, right here. The leader study for loraglutide. And what's occurred is that in all of these cases, there has not been an increase in cardiovascular risk. It's been mostly what? No effect. Neutral. No effect, good or bad. In some of these cases, it's been what? <coughs> of benefit. There's a reduction in cardiovascular risk. And that's been impressive. And so that's why I pointed out, when that's been the case, when the studies have shown not only a neutral effect, but a beneficial effect, that's leading us towards choosing those drugs. Like you look at all the gliptins, none of these studies have shown harm, but none of them have shown benefit either. So we just, you know, it's a toss-up. Whichever one you want to use, it seems fine. But when you look at the published studies for the glyphosin drugs, so far, Emporeg looks the best. We see a signal towards comparable outcomes with Canvas, which is canagliflozin, but nothing so far is as strong as what we've seen with empagliflozin. And the same thing with the, with the GLP-1 analogs. Leader, as strong outcomes as anything we've seen, sustained six is the next closest to, but that's with semaglutide, the newest one that was just approved a few months ago. And so it's, if you want to be evidence-based, if you're using a glyphosin drug, then it would be epiglyphosin. If it's a GLP-1 analog, it would be loraglutide. If it's a glyptin drug, it's, they all seem the same, any one of them. So that's driving practice patterns. All right, now, this study here, just the 10,000-foot view of it. Take 10,000 patients with diabetes, they're all thought to have high risk for cardiovascular event at baseline. You randomize half of them to standard A1C control. The usual drugs, and you try and achieve an A1C of less than 7.5%. What's diagnostic for, um, for diabetes? What level of A1C? Yeah, so anything greater than 6.4. That would, that would be diagnostic for diabetes. And so some would argue that the lower you can get that, the better in terms of getting people to good outcomes. So that's one group, less than 7.5. The intensive group is trying to make their A1Cs normal, right? Less than what it takes to be diagnosed for diabetes, something less than 6.5. And what they found was what? The more close to normal you are, the greater the risk for death. So by intensively treating their diabetes, on average, more people die. Why would that be? Maybe did they go like really fast? Like instead of a slow change, you need a fast change? It was too abrupt of a change. Hypoglycemic events. Some other complications. Now, these these um, these data were published before a bunch of these drugs we just talked about were available. So the therapies were being used were a little bit different than some of these "quote unquote" newer ones. Not everyone that is in this demographic, 10,000 type two diabetes, high cardiovascular risk, can tolerate aggressive glucose lowering. It's not the right strategy for everyone. And that's what we really learned from this. Getting, getting blood sugars down to normal levels makes a whole lot of sense for some patients. 
but for others, it's not the right approach. And that's really what we learned from this. Not that it's harmful in everyone, but that there are some people who just aren't good candidates for this approach. And thus you have, again, in the guidelines, you have recommendations that look like this table. Your level of A1C reduction should be based on a number of patient-specific factors. So as you go to the left, you're being more aggressive in terms of A1C reduction. As you go to the right, you're being less aggressive. And these are the different criteria that might lead you to be more or less aggressive. Like if life expectancy at the time of diagnosis is really long, then you probably want to be really aggressive. But if it's really short, I don't know if there's a need to be so aggressive. And if it's ultra short, maybe it's just basically keeping the sugar from being 400 all day long, but not paying too attention to the A1C. And you can go through all these variables and make those kinds of arguments. Do they have the resources and support necessary for aggressive therapy? If they do, be aggressive. If they don't, maybe they can't afford a lot of these options that you're thinking about throwing at them. And rather than overwhelm them with a bunch of drugs that they can't afford, give them one or two that they can, and you're more likely to get some reasonable outcomes, as opposed to just non-adherence and nothing. So what that means is the A1C goal for your patient ought to be what? Individualized, right? The guidelines are to treat to an A1C less than 7%, but that's for a population, that's not for an individual patient. And that's true of any guideline. You want to individualize them to your patients. What makes sense for the person that is there in front of you? Okay. Now we move on to seizures. Who feels ready to have one? <laughs> All right, now from this here, this content here, my objective is a little bit different. And it's, um, it's because of what your role with these drugs is going to be. When it comes to drug for drugs for diabetes, regardless of where you end up in practice, you're going to come across those drugs. And many times you'll be, you'll be the author of the prescriptions of those drugs and managing patients that are receiving them. When it comes to anticonvulsants, now many of these drugs are used for purposes other than seizures. And so that's where you'll come across them. But even if it's for seizure, you may come across them simply because patients frequently suffer seizures and you ought to be familiar with some of the most important principles that are common to this category of medication. It doesn't mean that many of you are going to be going into neurology. It's probably unlikely that the majority, or even a lot of you, will go into that field. But treating conditions that require anticonvulsants is going to impact a whole lot of you. Where are anticonvulsants used very frequently other than for seizures? For for, uh, for migraine prophylaxis, for treatment and relief of other nerve-related pain, and for other psychiatric ailments, such as sometimes anxiety, more commonly bipolar disorder as mood stabilizers for illnesses like bipolar illness. 
But most commonly, where it's going to affect the majority of you are drugs like gabapentin for pain-related disorders. That's an anticonvulsant, even though it's rarely used for that purpose. All right, so a whole bunch of drugs here. The good news is the right-hand column is simply there to acknowledge there's a lot of anticonvulsants. You won't need to know any of those names. I don't think I'll even make them the wrong answer to anything. It just won't show up. But the ones on the left are, are relevant. And so we're going to be walking through those and what are, are really most important. Now again, five or 10,000 foot view of anticonvulsants and how they work. If they're being used for seizure, what is it that we're essentially trying to do? Just in general, if there's abnormal electric, electrical activity in the brain, what must we be trying to do with the drug therapy? Stop it or slow it down, right? Slow the propagation, the conductance of, the, of that transmission from one place to the next. And maybe it could be aborted. Very comparable to treating what other condition? Abnormal electrical activity, not in the brain, but in the heart, right? There's a lot of synergy here between anticonvulsants and antiarrhythmic drug therapy. Essentially, you're trying to accomplish the same thing. It's just in different locations. And it happens to be, unfortunately, different drugs. Now, there are three overarching mechanisms by which we can do this. We can enhance the activity of inhibitory transmitters. And the primary inhibitory transmitter in the brain is what? Yeah. Is GABA, right? So something that would enhance the activity of GABA. And that will be primarily what kinds of drugs? Benzodiazepines. Benzodiazepines, yeah, benzodiazepines. So this picture here, this is in your slides, but it's later on. I realized I needed to put it up earlier because you and I didn't really talk about benzos, but I think it was covered somewhere else. Yeah. So this is a picture, sort of covered, right? It was a picture of the GABA receptor, which to me looks like a vegetable like a bell pepper. <laughs> so it is a, it's a, a voltage-gated ion channel. This receptor controls the influx of chloride ion from outside the cell into the cell. When chloride flows into the cell, there's a hyperpolarization. And what you get is a diminished response inside that cell. So you slow nervous transmission when chloride flows into the cell. This is why benzodiazepines are sedating. It's why they reduce anxiety. It's why they relax muscles. Because they promote chloride influx into the cell by binding to this receptor. And you can see benzodiazepines have a specific place that they bind to. And that allows GABA to open up this channel with a greater frequency per unit of time. What else seems to bind to this channel? Alcohol, right? And in fact, if someone is known to be a large consumer of alcohol, then what does that mean for the benzodiazepine dose should they need one? It's going to be higher. Their benzo requirements are going to be higher. It behooves them to be honest about their alcohol history if they need a benzodiazepine for some type of maybe procedure or other purpose. Because you can base the dose on that history. It also means that if someone's suffering from alcohol withdrawal, 
an effective therapy would be benzodiazepines, right? You can replace that need by occupying a similar place on the GABA receptor. The other ligand appears to be, um, well, there's GABA binds, benzodiazepines bind, alcohol binds, and barbiturates bind, such as, what's an example of one? Phenobarbital, yeah. Phenobarbital binds as well. Now, the difference between phenobarbital and benzodiazepines, did this come up anywhere that you can recall? So benzodiazepines, they can't do anything at this receptor if there isn't already GABA there. They facilitate GABA's activity, but they don't replace it. So they make it easier for GABA to open up this channel and allow chloride to flow in. But the benzodiazepine all by itself can't do that. If you didn't have GABA in your brain, a benzodiazepine drug like, well, what's an example? Lorazepam, diazepam, they, most of them end in sounds alike, but not all of them. They wouldn't do anything. So technically what you get is an increase in frequency of that chloride channel opening for whatever unit of time you want to use as a measure. Barbiturates, like phenobarbital, can independently open up that channel. There doesn't need to be GABA there. So they can open it and prolong the duration by which it stays open. The consequences in overdose are what? Which of the two is more dangerous? Clearly, barbiturates are more dangerous because they themselves can open up that channel and keep it open. Whereas the benzos, they are relying on GABA to do what it does otherwise. So an overdose, phenobarbital, much more dangerous, which is why we don't use that type of drug all that often today. Benzos came next in terms of historical development and ended up being a much safer approach if this was your target. So that's one way to achieve anticonvulsant activity. Give a drug that enhances chloride influx into the cell through the GABA channel. The others are to interfere with the excitatory transmitters, which are mostly glutamate or aspartate. So either suppress their release or block their receptors. One way to suppress their release is to modulate some of the other ion channels, either sodium or calcium most often. So that's what this next picture is for. So this is an excitatory neuronal synapse. If you just pretend that this is glutamate being released, presynaptic, postsynaptic. So we could do something to tie up the receptors for glutamate. That would prevent excitation. And in the case of seizures, diminish seizure activity, or maybe prevent it from happening in the first place. Or by specifically blocking either sodium or calcium channels presynaptically, we can suppress the release of glutamate in the first place. And that too can either abort a seizure or more commonly minimize the risk for a seizure to occur. So three overarching strategies. Enhance inhibitory neurotransmission or suppress excitatory transmission in one of two ways. Block receptors for excitatory transmitters or prevent the release of those transmitters by blocking and interfering with presynaptic channels. Are we good? All right. 
So when it comes to the drugs, we can put them into one or different categories. We can have drugs that are sodium channel blockers. Phenethylamine and carbamazepine fit into that category. We can have others that have calcium channel blockers. Ethosuximide certainly fits there. We have drugs that are GABA modulators, benzos and barbiturates. We know that already. And then we have others. What do you think makes others others? Other mechanisms, but I haven't told you there are other mechanisms. I've kept it very general and all-encompassing. They have multiple mechanisms within these pathways. Like valproic acid does all three of these things. It's a sodium channel blocker, it's a calcium channel blocker. It increases GABA levels, a little bit different than benzodiazepines, but there's more GABA available. And so when I put it into an other category, it's because I don't feel personally, and some of this is opinion, that that drug has one single mechanism that best explains how it works. And so the caveat for this table here, or this series of categorizations, is that this is how I feel that they should be represented. You may go to a textbook and they're categorized a little bit differently. Most often what you'll see is one of these three drugs on the bottom we put into one of the other categories. I just think that they're too diverse in their mechanisms to to pigeon them, pull them into just one. You can take all those other drugs that were on the right, I said won't be the right or wrong answer to anything, and you can put them into the same categories. So it's really the three categories plus the miscellaneous others. All right, now in general, again, the toxicities we worry about with anticonvulsants, what would you expect to be the side effects of drugs that slow neurotransmission? Why does a drug that slows neurotransmission produce predictable GI effects? I don't know the answer to that one. Maybe it was because you saw it up here. Because there are GI receptors that overlap with those in the central nervous system, so that would maybe that's the rationale? Okay. So if you sold me on that. Why why or what are the CNS side effects you would expect? Depression. Maybe depression. No, not that kind of depression, but like the whole system is depressed. The whole system is depressed, meaning? <laughs> meaning like everything. I don't know. It's just, it's not, I don't know. I feel like it's suppression. too, yeah. Suppression. General. So more specific adjectives. Slower, slower motor function. How about alertness? Diminished alertness. Sedation, sleepiness, ataxia, those are all expected side effects. If you slow neurotransmission, you should expect that as an artifact. These drugs might impair cognition, they might make you more sleepy, they might alter your balance because of cerebellar effects. And the greater the dose, the greater the risk for those side effects. So an expected consequence of having to use these types of drugs. Now many of these agents happen to be locally irritating. That's the reason for the GI effect in most of them. Like valproic acid is acidic. And the local irritation it produces ends up producing a fair amount of GI distress. And that's true for many of the traditional anticonvulsants. The dermatologic side effects, again, for many of the traditional agents, phenytoin, carbamazepine, some of the others, some potentially really severe rashes can occur. And sometimes those progress to multi-organ involvement. And when that's the case, how do we label the rash? 
Stevens-Johnson syndrome, right? So some of these drugs are the culprits, Stevens-Johnson. And then some of them will also suppress the bone marrow. So in general, when you see anticonvulsants, it doesn't mean that all of them do these, but think about this menu of potential side effects, especially the one on the top. The other concerns, drug-drug interactions. So one thing I want you to do and begin today, come across an anticonvulsant on an exam, on the boards, in practice, and think, wow, there's a lot of drug interaction potential with drugs in this family. I ought to do due diligence and make sure I, I just check into it with this particular agent. Doesn't mean you'll uncover something, but probably eight times out of 10 you will. So rather than try and memorize the interactions, just try to remember that anticonvulsants are frequently the source of drug-drug interactions. And usually it's related to abnormalities in liver metabolism, induction or inhibition of cytochrome P450 enzymes. Most often induction. Some of the anticonvulsants are very strong enzyme inducers. That would make them very similar to what antibiotic? Rifampin. Right, on the order of what you see with rifampin. We tend to titrate these drugs carefully up to a target dose. And we like to push the dose for one drug rather than add another drug. Because if you add another drug, you're adding a whole bunch of more side effects. Sometimes we don't have a choice, but it's better to get by with just one drug if possible. On the flip side, if we need to take that drug away, what's really important is to taper it. If you have the flexibility. There are some situations where we need to abruptly withdraw the medicine. But if you can taper it, you're more often going to prevent adverse reactions, which could be as severe as another seizure, right? Withdrawal of an anticonvulsant is a, a great instigator of more abnormal electrical activity. So no one wasn't completely wrong. There is an increased risk for suicide with these drugs. And that's hard to tease out whether it's really drug-related or not. It's similar to the story with antidepressants. Remember, antidepressants sometimes are associated with increased risk for suicidality. The same thing with anticonvulsants. So a discussion to have with your patients that you might read elsewhere that these drugs may cause these kinds of feelings it's hard to tell if that's an artifact of using a lot of these drugs for psychiatric purposes and now skewing the findings, or is there really something drug-related to it? And then use in pregnancy. What do you think about that? Many of them are either category D, some are in category X. It's hard to figure out what is the right anticonvulsant to use in pregnancy. Sometimes you need to. Sometimes the risk of not treating seizure in pregnancy is worse than using the drug in terms of the fetal outcome. But it's very hard to say what is the best drug to use. We know there's a lot of side effects with anticonvulsants in general. And so I can't stand here today and tell you this is the best anticonvulsant to use in pregnancy. I can tell you a few that are really worth avoiding if you have a choice. I'll probably gas the top of the list. But it's hard to pinpoint what's really the best one. All right, now these are the first two. Phenytoin and carbamazepine we can put together because they are very similar drugs. They both primarily block sodium channels. So the end result is there's less outflow 
of excitatory transmitter from that presynaptic neuron. So less excitation means there's a slowing of neurotransmission. How long have these drugs been in use? A long time. These are some of the original anticonvulsants. We've been using these for decades, and we continue to use them today. They have extensive liver metabolism, and they have very strong ability to do what to cytochrome enzymes? Induce them, right? Just like rifampin. They can help speed up clearance of other drugs because there's such strong induction. They have narrow therapeutic windows. This level right here applies to phenytoin specifically. Carbamazepine is 4 to 10. I don't care about the numbers. I do want you to recognize that these drugs, narrow therapeutic window. If you're above that, more side effects. If you're below that, not as much efficacy. On top of that, they have nonlinear kinetics. And here's an example of phenytoin. We talked about this concept at the beginning of last semester, and now we come back to it. So with phenytoin, what you see here is at relatively low doses, you get a linear concentration response. But once you get into higher doses, it becomes nonlinear and very unpredictable. Disproportionate changes in plasma levels by increasing the dose just another 100 milligrams. So 0 to 100, a little bit. 0 to 100 to 200, a little bit. 200 to 300, quite a bit more. 300 to 400, now you are off the chart toxic. Why does that happen? Because that's not the norm. Most drugs are linear throughout the dosing range. They look like the dotted line, not the exponential line. Accumulation. Accumulation because there is some self-induction of metabolism, but if anything, that would keep it more linear. <coughs> Why is there accumulation? The process of metabolism becomes saturated and it becomes saturated at relatively low levels. So remember, what's therapeutic for phenytoin is considered 10 to 20 units. And yet you become nonlinear usually below that number. And so what's therapeutic is usually right in the heart of the exponential part of the curve. The ability to metabolize the drug with further increases in dose has become saturated. And so now the drug is accumulating and you can't get rid of it quickly enough. That's called zero-order elimination. The ability to remove this drug has become saturated. It's no longer a first-order process. It's zero-order. And this is what it would look like if you graph the dose versus the plasma concentration. What does this mean in terms of figuring out the right dose for an individual patient? There's going to be variability, right? Some people, it's 300 milligrams as therapeutic. Others, it might be 400. Others, it might be 200. And so that makes it necessary to be able to, to monitor some set or measure plasma levels. If you can't monitor the plasma level, you can't figure out what the right dose is, unless you can't really use the drug safely. So it becomes complicated. And that's true for carbamazepine too. These nonlinear pharmacokinetic behaviors, on top of that, drugs that have narrow therapeutic windows, where you don't have a lot of margin to work with. If the margins were really large, it wouldn't matter so much but the margins are small. If you can't monitor, you can't use it. And because these are inducers, they will reduce the levels of most other drugs. Unless, of course, those other drugs are what? 
prodrugs, in which case what you're doing there is promoting bioactivation, right? Increasing more active metabolite. Conceptually, everyone follow that? Good. All right, now the adverse effects for phenytoin and carbamazepine are on two different slides. It's because there are a couple of things that are black box warnings that are unique to each one. So I had to, even though I didn't want to, I had to put them on separate slides. The CNS and GI side effects are the same. They both cause CNS suppression. They both cause GI irritation. It's the other miscellaneous ones that show up. And with phenytoin, when you give it intravenously, it might be cardiotoxic. So that shows up there. It's one of the side effects that gets talked about a lot is gingival hyperplasia. What is that? It's overgrowth of the gum tissue. This is a common drug-induced phenomenon. On the medical boards, what you'll oftentimes see in the step one exam is a picture of a patient with their mouth, and you see gingival hyperplasia. And it asks, they give you a list of like eight drugs, and they ask you to pick which of these drugs is most likely responsible for this presentation. It's almost always phenytoin, gingival hyperplasia. There's another type of drug we've talked about that can do this. Calcium channel blockers. Yeah, especially the dihydropyridines. But even more so phenytoin. All right, and then carbamazepine, CNS, GI, the same. Now, this is where it differs. There's more bone marrow suppression, mostly of the white blood cell count. So something to think about if you have no other cause, and that's the presentation. And then the rashes. There can be severe life-threatening rashes. Now you can see the rashes with phenytoin. What's different between the rashes with phenytoin and the rashes with carbamazepine? There are two differences. Just literal differences on the slides. What are the differences? There's a black box for one and not the other. Right? The black box is for carbamazepine, not phenytoin which means the severity and the frequency is probably greater for which one? The one with the black box, carbamazepine. And what else is different? There are some letters and numbers after the one for carbamazepine. And those letters and numbers suggest what? There's a genotypic predictability. We can screen patients who are at greater risk for rash from carbamazepine. And if I told you that in this neck of the woods, where we're physically located, we're more likely to encounter patients with the B1502 allele. Who do you think those people are? People of Asian ancestry, yeah. So we don't actually screen for everyone because we know that in non-Asian patients, you're very, very unlikely to encounter this phenotype. But in the Asian population, it happens with some degree of frequency. And this can predict who's going to have a life-threatening rash. So it helps us better decide, even before we start therapy, who's more likely to progress. With phenytoin, the, the rashes can be life-threatening, but there is no genotypic correlation. There's no screening test we can do to predict who the people are that will progress to Stevens-Johnson syndrome. All right, athosuximide is a calcium channel blocker. Now, when we talked about calcium channel blockers before, it was in the context of what? Treating cardiovascular disorders, right? Either suppressing heart rate or lowering blood pressure by 
reducing vascular resistance, right? Dilating the arterioles. When we were talking about those types of calcium channel blockers, we were talking about what type of calcium channel? You have a bunch of letters to choose from. The L-type. Those are L-type calcium channel blockers. Who knew that there's so many different types of calcium channels? Well, now you know. And so when we use calcium channel blockers for neurologic purposes, we're modulating one of the other types of calcium channels. Usually either the P slash Q or the T-type calcium channel, which all have some neurotransmitter or pacemaker-like effects within the, neuro, the electrical circuitry within the brain. They do not affect the L-type, which are on the heart and the peripheral blood vessels. And it's the reason why drugs like ethosuximide, even though they're calcium channel blockers, it's the reason why they don't do what? Lower blood pressure or change heart rate, because right? they're not affecting those types of calcium channels. So anyway, besides that, the main reason why I like to include ethosuximide is so we can point out calcium channels. But it's also the drug of choice for absence seizures. It's probably one of the better tolerated drugs amongst the anticonvulsants, but it doesn't have good efficacy for other types. Now, what is an absence seizure? Like, where does that get diagnosed more often than not? In pediatrics, right? And what's happening there? Yeah, a lapse in awareness, conscious. They're there physically, but it's sort of like you guys sometimes, right? You're not really there, right? So that's what this drug is for, absence seizure. And you discover it because the learning just isn't where it ought to be, given everything else about the patient. So this is one of the drugs of choice. There are not a lot of drugs that work for absence seizure, so this is the one you guys should be looking for. All right, then the benzodiazepines, and we're going to end with this part here. So what we see here historically is that phenobarbital is what? It's, what, what the, do we see that here? It's old, right? It's like more than 100 years old. So this has been around longer than anything else that modulates the GABA receptor. And that's the reason why phenobarbital had a huge role 100 years ago. It was the only thing available. But since the 1960s, we've had a lot of other options that are safer. That's when the benzodiazepines first came to, to be, and they were just safer drugs. The hazards and overdose were nowhere near as great. And so that's, that's typically what we use. Now, the ones in blue are there because, they're blue because of what? They're the most used for? Seizures. Oh, yeah. And what type of seizure? They, they have efficacy in all seizures, but where they're most likely to be used is in status epilepticus. Acute, like grand mal seizures, certainly. Because they acutely abort the seizure. Nothing works as quickly as drugs from this page to acutely correct abnormal electrical activity. The other advantage for these three specifically, because any one of these would work, what is it about diazepam, lorazepam, midazolam that makes them the most convenient to use? 
Would would you take a patient who's in status epilepticus and give them an oral anticonvulsant? <laughs> Probably not. You can give them parenterally, or you can give them through a non-oral route. Like diazepam, we can give by injection. We can also give it as a rectal gel, or midazolam we can give by injection, or we can give it as a nasal spray. And lorazepam, we can give that as an injectable drug as well. So that's the primary reason they're blue. They're drugs that lend themselves to the routes of administration that are most convenient for why they get used. All right, now one other piece. Now they would work for almost any seizure type, but rarely are they used chronically for seizures. Why is that? The, the tolerance that develops, right? If you take a benzodiazepine to help you go to sleep and you use that for the next week, and the week after that, and the week after that. We get to the middle of July, and what do you need? More. More, right? You need a higher dose to produce the same effect. The same thing happens for anxiolysis. The dose that works today will not be the same dose that works next month. And so other drugs will work for those seizure types and don't have tolerance. So why not use those other drugs? That's the reason. But they would work if you're willing to take that route prescribe infinite quantities of diazepam. So here, here's where the slide was originally positioned. We're giving these drugs that have the effect on the receptor to in, promote influx of chloride ions. And this is visually the difference, safety-wise. Benzodiazepines by themselves, in overdose, will not kill you. Barbiturates will. Now, that said, there are many patients where benzodiazepines are part of the fatality. But in almost all of those cases, what else is present? Other CNS suppressants. Opioids, alcohol, it's a mixed picture. Benzos by themselves, very unlikely to cause enough suppression to produce coma or death. Barbiturates, it doesn't take that much. Now on top of that, there's one other element that's important and related to this. It is um, this drug here. What is this? Flumazenil. It's a, it's a benzodiazepine reversal agent. What that drug will do is bind to this place right here between the alpha and gamma subunits and displace whatever else is bound there. So if your benzodiazepine is bound, Administer flumazenil, and it will quickly displace all that benzodiazepine and acutely reverse its effect. And flumazenil itself has a neutral effect there. It doesn't do anything. It's a competitive antagonist. It does not bind between the alpha and the beta, which means it does not reverse what? It doesn't reduce phenobarbital or other overdoses. So not only are the barbiturates more dangerous in overdose, we don't have an antidote. We have just supportive therapy. Whereas benzodiazepines, they're not as dangerous. And if you needed it, not that we usually use it, but if you needed it, we do have a reversal agent for their use. So good to be familiar with clomazepine. Write that drug name down and what it does. And that will be a place to stop for today, if that's okay with you.
always good to stop. <laughs> right, so we'll finish this next week. We will cover drugs for Parkinson's disease. And then if you want to stick around, we'll do a review. And we'll have the next exam after that. Isn't the, the exam after that following week? So we have to like more yeah, so it's the following week.